Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with the show, I want you guys to do us a favor. Next time you're on our website, hazardground.com, click on the Sponsors tab at the top of the homepage. Check out some of the great affiliate sponsors we have for this podcast. Click on any of those sponsor banners, and when you make a purchase from any of those companies through our website, you're helping out this podcast tremendously. With the holidays coming up, no better place to do your shopping than through our sponsors. It helps us out, and it helps keep each episode ad-free, and it helps out veterans all across America. And of course, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You know how it works. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of our website, hazardground.com. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a portion of what you spend, and then we distribute that back out to some of the great charities and foundations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. We've been hearing so much from you guys via email and the reviews we get on the podcast on iTunes. We love hearing from you guys, so keep it coming. But I wanted to read you a couple of lines from an email that we received last week from a listener. This email comes from Richard B., And he says, quote, I came across your podcast a couple of months ago, and since then I've been listening to it every chance I get and absolutely love it. I'm in the process of joining the Air Force because of my father and partly from listening to your podcast. These stories are amazing and reinforce my desire to join. Richard B., thank you so much. Best of luck to you, and thank you for choosing a life of service in the United States military. We love to hear from you guys, so please Keep the responses, keep the emails coming, and of course, you can contact us directly through our website, hazardground.com. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And lastly, we want to wish you guys the happiest and healthiest of Thanksgivings. Blessings to you and your family and loved ones, not only here in America, but all across the globe. And certainly a nod to all those who are still serving around the globe and won't be with their families and loved ones here in the United States for the Thanksgiving holiday. So happy Thanksgiving to all. And with that out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is another member of a foreign military. From time to time, we like to go outside the bounds of the United States military to tell certain stories because it helps provide context to what our military does in combat around the globe who stand alongside us in battle all across the world. Again, joining us this week is a member of the Australian military who fought in Vietnam in the Battle of Long Tan. I don't want to give too much away because he's better off telling you this story himself and sort of how uh, the Australian military got into this whole thing. But I'd like to welcome into the podcast, live all the way from Australia, our guest is Dave Sabin. Dave, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Mark. Thanks very much for the invitation. Okay, so a lot of people probably don't know that there were Australians fighting alongside U.S. and coalition forces in Vietnam. So this is probably something different for a lot of us. Um, Typically, how we start these conversations is asking you how you got in the military. How and why did you end up in the Australian military? Okay, well, in the mid-60s, Australia had uh, a draft. We called it the National Service. The idea was that the government registered everyone, every male that was turning 20 uh, on their, their birth date. 
Um, when that was registered, the, the government then came along and, and selected enough dates to supply them with all the numbers that they wanted. And this happened uh, twice a year. Um, so I was uh, I registered for this um, this draft or this national service, and my number came up, and so I came into the first intake of national service, which was mid sixty five. Now, but when you signed up for this, did you have an idea that you were heading to war? No, not at all. Um, the conditions or the circumstances, if you like, the context was that uh, in the early sixties. Uh, President Sukarno in Indonesia was rattling the saber against Australia and um, giving us uh, intimidating looks. And we had a very, very small military at that stage. So Australia sort of looked at, at, at its own military and said, well, we better, we better build up our military in um, on the condition uh, or in the circumstance that uh, Indonesia might uh, act against us. Um, that was the context. So national service was brought in, the idea being over the next few years we'd, we'd raise our military, uh, which was very small at only about a brigade of infantry, three battalions of infantry, and we'd triple it. So we'd end up after, after the increase to, to uh, three brigades of infantry with all the supporting arms. Uh, however, uh, as as it got underway, then uh, Vietnam came on the horizon, and we we were divorted, diverted. Um, Indonesia Sukarno got the message that we were going to um, uh, resist him if we if he tried anything, and so our forces were then devoted to um, Vietnam. It's interesting because you know in the '60s when young men in America were 18 years old, they were automatically thrown into the draft, and and they were selected for service by their birth date. It was just done in pools and in numbers, and all those yep. people eventually knew that if they got drafted, they were going to Vietnam. And we've had several yep. guests on the podcast who said during the '60s, you know what? Well, I'm just going to sign up on my own in the hopes yep. of sort of controlling my own destiny. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, eventually they all ended up there regardless, but. Uh, so it's, you know, I think it, what's different is that you sort of signed up, if I'm hearing you correct and understand it, you know, just as a part of national service because you're a patriot and you wanted to serve your country. And lo and behold, you get thrust into uh, a war that you never thought you were going to be part of. That's correct. What you're saying applied in the later 60s in Australia, um, but not not in uh, 65 and, and in the start of 66. So what was it like going through officer training then? I mean, because we talk so much about American boot camp, but I don't think anybody understands how other <laughs> countries do it and how different it may be. Well, um, because of the, the national service in our case was, was going to be a two-year full-time span, um, it was a very compressed uh, schedule. Basically, the, the uh, government uh, expected that it would take a year to train a soldier, and then they'd get a year of, of, of duty out of him. And then that was the end of his commitment. Uh, within that framework, they decided that it would be um, an opportunity to uh, to uh, have um, just uh, an, officer, an officer training scheme. The officer training scheme was then going to be uh, about 22 weeks full-time of very, very intensive um, uh, activity to, to, to graduate a second lieutenant. The second lieutenant would only be trained... Uh, to become um, a platoon leader of infantry working in a counter-revolutionary warfare role in a Southeast Asia environment. So everything else they cut out of the course. And this was, as I said, uh, aimed at, uh, at, at countering uh, an Indonesian threat 
so that that was the uh, that was the reason we expected Southeast Asia, and uh, rather than full war, we expected to be involved in a counter-revolutionary war. Both of those conditions applied in Vietnam when we when we uh, took that role on. When you talk about Indonesia back then, uh, I'm just sort of wondering, you know, the build-up to Vietnam on our end in the United States, and granted, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't around, but just knowing, knowing and understanding history, you know, you, you had a whole lot of uh, Cold War antics, so to speak, with the Cubans and the Russians, and there was a lot of, you know, build-up back and forth, and then, you know, somehow it ended up in Southeast Asia where it all came to a head. But I'm just curious, you know, for you guys in Australia, were you worried about uprising? Were you worried about attacks? I mean, you know, if you're familiar with history, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, we were worried about them dropping a nuclear warhead in America. I mean, was there any sort of national fear for you guys and national safety back then? Uh, It was a a much reduced scale from what you're talking about. But even at the time, we were involved with the British in what the British, um, with a great deal of reservation, called the emergency, the Malayan emergency, um, where we were fighting uh, counter-revolutionary forces in or rev- we were countering revolutionary forces in in uh, what was in Malaya. Um, we we had uh, a battalion um, based in uh, in near uh, uh, Singapore, and uh, Sukarno was um, was very much of the communist ideology, and he was making uh, inferences that the top end of Australia was was fairly um, uh, deserted. And that he would um, be interested in uh, absorbing a part of that. Now, remember, Australia's population in those days was something around uh, 10 million, uh, and the country size is basically the size of uh, continental uh, USA. So he was quite right. Uh, there's a lot of area up in the Northern Territory uh, of Australia where uh, he would be um, Quite easily, uh, quite easy, able to deposit um, a couple of million citizens, protected by a half a million soldiers, and there's nothing Australia could do about it. Sure. And that's basically the environment that we were living in. Uh, very much low key. We're not talking about um, uh, the, the Russians and the, and the missiles, but we're talking about um, land acquisition and um, political domination of territory that we couldn't easily defend. All right, so you sign up in 1965 for what is, as you said, a two-year commitment. Um, Correct. But things change dramatically for you as you find out you're going to (laughs) Vietnam. How how and when do you find out that all of a sudden you go from worrying about Indonesia to, hey, you guys are leaving Australia to go to Vietnam? Well, yes. um, uh, If you um, go back to Vietnam, um, uh, both America and Australia had advisors in Vietnam from uh, the early 60s. Right. In fact, in America's case, probably from 59. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the first of your ground forces landed in, uh, I think, mid-65, which was, um, that's, that's why Vietnam wasn't on the horizon when we were called up. In fact, the word Vietnam wasn't even used. It was known as uh, Indochina. Um, so then when the American forces landed uh, uh, at Da Nang, the Marines landed at Da Nang in, I think it was May 65, that was the trigger for Australia to say, well, uh, wait a minute, we might be asked to help, and in fact, we probably will want to help, um, so we better start thinking about gearing up to help. So in uh, in a couple of months after that, in, in let's say mid-65, we sent over one battalion of uh, infantry with um, appropriate supporting arms who served with your 173rd Airborne 
uh, which was a brigade, but only had two battalions in it. So we became the third battalion for 173rd. And it was based in Bienois province, just north of Saigon. And they operated, they meaning our battalion, operated with the Americans for the first year, from mid-65 to mid-66. During that time frame, um, it was appreciated, first of all, that we weren't able to operate the way the Americans did, so our form of operation was different. And um, uh, we were ineffective by ourselves because we weren't large enough. So we, we uh, came to an agreement with the South Vietnamese and the Americans that we would double our force but be given a separate province to, to run. So from mid-'66 on... Um, we had two infantry battalions with supporting arms operating semi-independently, still under Westmoreland's command, but um, in Phuc Thuy province, uh, which was its own defined um, uh, South Vietnamese province. Um, to answer your question, how did we feel about it? Um, we we were in, in training at that stage and uh, dressed in green and all gung-ho and uh, one one destination was as good as another to us. So if it wasn't going to be um, the backwaters of the islands of the Indonesia, then mainland Vietnam was okay by us. <laughs> so when do you actually land in Vietnam? Okay. Um, uh, I was called up in mid-65 and did our, uh, the six-month officer course, joined my unit, which happened to be 6 RAR, 6th Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment Infantry, in January 66. Um, we initially um, uh, simply got on with battalion training until about um, April when we were warned that we were going to go to Vietnam as one of the two battalions. Um, we landed in Vietnam uh, and uh, went to Vung Tau uh, area in early June of 1966. So it was exactly a year after being first called in. Let me ask you, when you found out you were going there, you know, you talk to a lot of American soldiers, uh, and especially in the in the post 9-11 era that we live in, you know, they sign up for the simple fact that, look, I signed up so I could go to combat. You know, this is what sure. I trained for. This is why I went, you know, I, I chose to serve. Did you guys feel yes. that same thing about Vietnam? This is why we chose to serve? Or was this one of those things where it's like, what the hell are we doing in Vietnam? I signed up to serve Australia. Um, no, um, that that uh, that sentiment started to take uh, root in the late 60s. Um, but in the early 60s, we had no basis upon, upon which to think that. Um, the... The, the one battalion that had been there had worked with the Americans quite effectively, but under different circumstances. Our scale of munitions and, and our methods of operation are, are different between the Americans and the Australians, and so we were sort of like uh, like the spare wheel on a on a land cruiser. Um, when we were given our own province, uh, we were able to exercise our own form of warfare, which was counter-revolutionary warfare. Um, uh, quite effectively, and we had some uh, successes, of which Long Tan was one. Um, but at, at that point, we started to get the sentiment: "Well, yes, I'm going to join up so that I can go to Vietnam." Uh, it was a it was a known destination. They knew the risks when they were coming in, so they joined up and and did their uh, their service along the along the lines of what you're saying. You know, I will turn up, turn up. I will sign up in order to fight the communists or fight, uh, fight Australia's enemies. But that wasn't apparent in the early 60s, oh, in the mid-60s. 
Okay. Um, so you get there in June of 1966. Um, yes. The Battle of Long Tan starts in August of 1966. Kind of just give me some uh, examples of like what day-to-day life was like leading up to August when you got there in June. What were you doing? What was your mission? Kind of uh, just okay. set, set the scene for me. Okay. Um, one of the one of the two battalions was five RAR, and they got there a month before we did. Um, so five and six battalion arrived in um, um, May and June of sixty six. Sixty uh, six, um, because I said that we were allocated a new province. Um, there were no um, uh, Allied forces at all off the roads in that province. So we went into the province as, as basically the first non-Vietnamese forces to leave the roads in living memory. Um, The French, when they had uh, dominated Vietnam, stuck to the roads and built forts along the roads and left the bush to the uh, Viet Minh. Um, The American forces had come in and cleared a couple of uh, villages um, uh, close by the capitals, and they had set up a large air base and a sea base uh, on the Vung Tau Peninsula, or Cape Saint-Jacques. Um, which was the main port that serviced um, Saigon. Because it was virgin territory, um, uh, our initial um, requirement was to get out into the bush and and start um, laying our stakes, build a base in the bush um, from nothing. We we went into a rubber plantation and set up a base from absolutely nothing, um, just the diggers and and their uh, entrenching tools. Um, so the first month or two were, were just set up the base and do small patrols immediately around the, uh, the task force base. We, we called it a task force because it was only two battalions. It, it didn't make a brigade level. It, it, we made it a brigade uh, a couple of years later, three battalions. So um, uh, starting the base was the, the main focus and, and digging in and wiring it and putting up the facilities and uh, the secondary uh, uh, but equally important um, problem was to get out into the nearby bush, the bush surrounding the base, and dominate that so that the enemy couldn't come in and recce and, and see what we were doing and mortar us and so on. So we, we uh, drew a, a notional line around the base about uh, uh, 10Ks out and um, uh, saturated that with small patrols, small meaning uh, platoon and uh, enhanced section patrols. Platoon, 30 men, uh, section, 10 men. How much resistance were you encountering while you were setting up the base in day-to-day operations prior to August? Were you, were you seeing a lot of the Viet Cong or no? Okay. Um, no, um, the, the, they knew that we were coming. And uh, what we encountered in the first couple of months were massive recce patrols they were they were coming in to see where we were what we were doing um, uh, to locate the base the extremities of the base they were looking for, for for intelligence and were not prepared to stand and fight so every time we saw them they ran all right so just for the non-military listen when you say recce you mean recon elements reconnaissance Re- recon. right okay i just recon, want to clarify yeah. okay um, Go ahead. Yeah. so they were on recon patrols and really they wanted to get the information and get back so if we interdicted them um, they would tend to, to run. Sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were trapped. Sometimes we caught them uh, from behind and so on. And so we had some contacts, but essentially um, very much uh, shoot and scoot. 
All right. So you weren't seeing much. Did, did you get a sense of the, the capabilities of what you were up against? Because, you know, we'll get into the actual battle itself, which was bloody sure. and gruesome. But did you have an idea of how much firepower or how tough the enemy was at this point? Um, not in practical terms, but in theory. Okay. Um, when we got there, we got the American intelligence reports and the South Vietnamese intelligence reports. And we worked out that, in fact, how the enemy was working was that they had two regiments. That's, that's their equivalent of, uh, of a brigade, three, three battalions or four battalions in a regiment. They had uh, two of those based on the perimeter of our province and, and their responsibility was for our province and for the, all the adjacent provinces. So we knew in, in theory that they had uh, two groups of soldiers who were uh, maybe uh, 16 to 1,800 um, riflemen each, uh, plus their supporting uh, their, their, their um, uh, supply networks and so on. But I'm talking about the, the, the soldier with the gun. There was two lots of between 16 and 18 of them that were able to operate in the province. So we knew that in theory. Um, however, none of them turned up to welcome us. Uh, they, they shrunk into the bush and, and basically took the attitude, well, well, let's see what the Australians do. Are they going to operate like they did in Malaya, and that is um, build a base and, and saturate patrol, or are they going to build, do what the Americans have done and come in and build large bases and conduct very large sweeps of certain areas, which was what the Marines started out doing up north and what uh, 173rd Airborne was doing around Saigon. All right. So you get pretty much dug in and you're fairly comfortable over the course of the first two months that you're there. Um, <laughs> I wish, Mark. I wish. Oh, okay. Was, well, I mean, like when I say, I, I guess you, you, got lo- <laughs> you, got, you got used to, you know, the, the day in, day out sort of. Uh, yes, Yes, monotony of, of doing the job that you were tasked to do at that point in time. That is correct. We weren't fully dug in. We didn't have enough wire supplies. We didn't have minefields and so on. But yes, we were we were comfortable in 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 the fact that we now had a base. We had our um, our immediate uh, patrols going out daily, and we had a, a few company operations out in depth, um, just to just to show force there. Okay. Um, the battle kicks off on the 18th of August, but give me the 24, 48 hours previously. Do you have a sense that things are going to start to pick up? What's happening in the, in the prior okay. 24, 48 hours? Right. From the day that I, I stepped on the sand at Wung Tau, um, 72 days later, we were up there operating in the, in the province. And uh, one morning on the 17th of August, the very early hours of the 17th of August, the base was mortared, uh, mortared uh, recoilless rifles and one artillery piece um, uh, shelled the base. That was the, our only, our first indication that there was something bigger and better than just the local VC uh, recon patrols. Um, the response to that was that uh, the, the brigadier sent out a patrol looking for the base plate positions, which happened on the day of the uh, 18th or the day of the 17th, I'm sorry, and they located the, the base plate positions and found exit tracks, that is, where the enemy had um, fired their weapons and then withdrawn into the bush. And all of the uh, um, the uh, withdrawal routes were out into the bush away from the, um, uh, the base and avoiding the rubber plantation, 
that was about four k's east of the base. That's the long tan rubber plantation. Um, they were uh, that was only a, an understrength company, so we wanted to follow up the, the the tracks. So they sent out a fresh company on the 18th. That was Delta Company of six battalion was was to take over the, the the task of the other company that was sent out there and follow up the withdrawal tracks. So on the day of the 18th, um, Delta Company, that's uh, 105 Australians and three um, New Zealand uh, artillery people, uh, we, we, we friendly call them uh, Kiwis, um, they uh, so 108 of us um, left the base, took over from the, uh, the the company that had been out there, and decided to follow up the tracks. And that's exactly what we were doing. We we selected the tracks that were moving eastward through the rubber plantation. Now, were you um, in charge of this patrol? No. Um, um, uh, let, let me uh, describe okay. an, uh, an Australian company. Um, a com- an Australian company is is basically three platoons of one officer, one sergeant, and about 30 men um, uh, per platoon, plus a, a, a company headquarters element of maybe 15 or so. Um, so that and, and the, the company commander is a, uh, is a major, and uh, the platoon commanders are second lieutenants or lieutenants. We do have a captain in the structure, but he was an administrative person, and he, was, he remained in base. Um, we had a non-commissioned officer, a, a, a warrant officer, and the artillery officer from, the, from New Zealand was uh, a captain. So that's basically the structure of the uh, of the company. So I was in I was platoon leader of one of the platoons. Okay, but not the platoon that went out on that patrol uh, following uh, the mortar attack. All all three of us went. The whole okay, company all, went. The whole company. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so you were leading one of, one of the platoons. Got it. Okay. Yes. All right. So when you when you leave out on this patrol, uh, kind of, do you remember what your thoughts were? What you were thinking? Did you were you nervous? Were you scared? I mean, or was this just something like, hey, we're, we're genuinely doing some fact finding here to try to figure out what's going on? That's exactly the second role. We we, we had nothing to be scared of. Nothing had happened up there yet that uh, that had any indication that these people that if we found them they wouldn't run away. Uh, that had been our experience for seventy three days. Uh, and we had no cause to believe otherwise. Uh, that's at, at the platoon level. What, what was happening up in the intelligence officer's uh, test, uh, desk, we have no idea. So we're, uh, we're going out there. Our, our um, thoughts are basically, well, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's get stuck into this. This is, a, this is an opportunity to find someone. Um, if there was uh, some weapons here, there might be a platoon of uh, enemy uh, protecting the weapons. Um, basically, three to one. Uh, uh, you know, we've got three platoons; they've got one. Uh, we, we'll be able to put up a good show if we find them, if they stick around long enough. So, there's no trepidation, there's no worries, there's no nervousness. Um, you know, just for, so far as us, it was so far as we were concerned, it was just going to be another walking the weeds and uh, getting a wet house in the afternoon because of the uh, monsoon rain, which will start at three or three thirty or four, um, and eventually we'll come home. All right. So um, I'm just trying to, you know, visually putting this in my head. I want the audience to be able to do the same. Um, sure. Are you the lead element of this patrol as far as like formation wise? Okay. Formation wise, um, uh, it was Virgin Bush most of the way. And I was a pretty, pretty good map reader. So from the base to where we met the other company, I led 
uh, my platoon led, and we were we were patrolling through um, oh, shoulder high elephant grass mostly. So it was uh, it was hacking hacking our way through to form a path. Um, so by the time uh, two hours of, of of hacking through the virgin bush um, happened, when we met the other group, um, twelve platoon, which was my platoon, had been in the lead, and we were uh, buggered. So. They put us down the back and put the other two platoons up front on a very wide front as we entered into the rubber, following some cart tracks. Um, so I was being spelled. The other two uh, platoons up front, uh, bushy-tailed and keen uh, to, to get on with the job, and off we set into the, into the rubber plantation. All right. So when you get to the rubber plantation, what happens? Okay, um, we're a couple of hundred yards into the rubber plantation um, and in a, in a formation which was wide, but not wide enough. With it. The tracks that we were following split and, and ended up going parallel about 100 yards apart. So the, the, the company commander put uh, one of the platoons, 10 platoon, the, 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 in Delta Company we had three platoons, nominated uh, 10 platoon, 11 platoon, and 12 platoon. Okay. Um, so 10 platoon took left front, 11 platoon took right front, and com- company headquarters and 12 platoon centre rear. And we're moving uh, on a very wide front and therefore fairly slowly through a rubber plantation, which is um, reasonably open. You can see for several hundred yards, um, except that on the right front, there was a rise. Now, as we came to the rise, uh, there was a road. We, we, we saw the, a road going from the rise across our front. Uh, in the Australian Army, if uh, if there's a creek or a road in front of you, you stop and do a, what we call an obstacle crossing deal. We don't just walk straight through it. Uh, we come up to it. We we look both ways. You know what you teach what you teach your kids at school. Um, send a, a section across. Um, send a few men across. Secure the other side. If it's all okay, we'll will cross the rest of the people. Well, the right front platoon, 11 platoon, was in, in the middle of crossing this road tactically uh, and had paused, you know, uh, we've got two sections across the road now. We're going to about, about to send the third. Platoon headquarters is about to cross. And as the platoon headquarters got committed to crossing the road, across the um, along the road to the right over the hill came six enemy soldiers uh, who were um, walking in a not not in a tactical manner. They had their rifles over their shoulders and they had their smokes and, and you know, they, they were quite casual. They were obviously not expecting us. Um, the sergeant let off a couple of shots, um, hit at least two of them. One went down, one dashed aside. The, the enemy group picked up um, the, the casualties and raced off to the east, which was obviously away from the base, away, away from us. Um, the platoon then did a contact drill onto that uh, uh, contact location, uh, picked up one AK-47, and uh, because it was only six blokes, uh, one of whom was uh, seriously wounded, the, pl- the, the company commander detached 11 platoon basically said okay um, 11 platoon go go find them you can handle you can handle that number your 30 men can handle the six men and so 11 platoon got detached and sent to chase the the withdrawing enemy Uh, meanwhile 11 platoon um, off 
Templeton and Twelkington closed up on company headquarters and we all crossed the road. So at this point, uh, after you, you know, hear the initial shots and the initial contact, um, is your mindset changing? Do you think that you're going to encounter some resistance at this point? Yes, sure. Um, uh, first of all, we, the, 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 there's nothing like a, a few gunshots to raise the adrenaline level. So sure. yes, that was dedicated. That we ticked that off. But uh, the report came back that these guys weren't in your typical VC and black pajama, you know, straw hat configuration. They they seemed to have uniforms and webbing, and they they had the fact that we picked up a brand new AK-47, sort of warned us that maybe this wasn't the local village idiot. Um, so the adrenaline's pumping, pumping, but we still only know that there's about six of them. So it's, it's something very well within our capabilities. Now, now, you're deep into the rubber plantation at this point, correct? Yeah, we're halfway through, yep. Okay. Um, do, do you, at this point, do you know, like, you have an idea of how far you're going to go before you turn back, or or you just, no. you're kind of hunting, um, for lack of a better term, at this point? Yeah, we're, we're hunting. We, we have uh, rations for three days. Uh, we'll follow them to hell if we need to. Um, we're, we're not expecting to go home to base uh, anytime soon, so this is just routine stuff. Um, uh, routine meaning that we've got a task to do. We've got a, a couple of enemy up ahead who are going to try to evade us. Uh, we've got the task of chasing them down before they reach their destination. Um, so, yep, we're we're keen and ready to go. When 11 Platoon takes off following the six guys that they saw, do you yeah. lose sight of them? Do you lose contact with them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Across the road, the rubber plantation was a younger a younger plantation with thicker canopy, so it had less um, uh, ground cover. Uh, the older plantation um, had had some undergrowth in it. Um, so now we have a, 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 wide, a longer visibility, but yes, um, the the um, the enemy is in a full run with their wounded, and eleven to turn is pretty much in a full run chasing them. So they're quickly out of sight. I, I suppose a visual range was about three hundred yards on the flat. Okay. So they they're beyond they're beyond three hundred yards away, and uh, and we not knowing exactly um, where the enemy is heading, um, not wanting to become involved in in the eleven platoon's flight fight, uh, and also pr- to protect their flank or to be able to protect their flank, we got across the road and roosted there for a while. You know, we we just stopped and uh, and what's going to happen next, sort of thing. Okay. On tiptoes, ready to do whatever we needed to do. So what happens next? Okay. Um, after several hundred yards, um, 11 platoon comes to a clearing in the rubber and approaches it rapidly, almost in extended line. And to use their words, um, the other side of the clearing just lit up like uh, like a fireworks. And they they were they had run into a whole a big group of enemy who were not dug in, so it wasn't an ambush. They were just sitting on the ground or lying on the ground waiting for what they knew was coming coming towards them. They, they, they were made aware of the fact that, that the small group was being chased. If you can imagine a clearing patrol, an enemy clearing patrol went out, got bumped, went back home, brought the news, there's people behind us, um, you know, everyone stand too, so everyone stood too. 
So the enemy um, opened up on a wide front against 11 platoon and stopped them dead in their tracks because there was obviously, even from the first firing, there was obviously more than a platoon of soldiers on the enemy side and a platoon wasn't going to launch an attack into a bigger bigger than platoon group. So, so right now, eleven platoon is getting into the getting into the messy stuff, right? They're being fired at. They're, they're getting stuck into it, yeah. Okay. And and within the first couple of minutes of, of firing, they had lost uh, five or six blokes because in the initial round of firing, they were standing up, um, you know, advancing. Right. So they had already taken casualties. They're trying to regroup, get get uh, get into a smaller circle, smaller perimeter. Uh, retrieved the blokes on the extremities who had been wounded, and the first action that a, an Australian uh, platoon leader would do when he comes into contact is call for artillery. And so that was what he was doing straight away. 11 platoon comes under heavy fire, and yes, when this goes on, you can't see them, but you can hear it? Um, not only hear it, but we're getting the overshoots through the canopy. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, the tracer had uh, died off by then, but uh, but yeah, there was just a constant zip of bullets um, uh, through the canopy because we're a couple of hundred yards behind. Or three, Do you remember how much time back. elapsed that they were being shot at? Um, well, uh, from the time that they were being shot at, they were going to stay being shot at for the next uh, two and a half hours. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, that's right, um, uh, with various intensities. But, but basically, they were where they were going to be. They couldn't um, reorganize and withdraw because of the intensity of the fire. Uh, if they had withdrawn, it would only be uh, the, the, the living able they would have had to leave their uh, dead and wounded behind, which which didn't enter, enter into our philosophy. So they sure. were basically trying to uh, consolidate defense and get artillery closer. Are you, think, was, are you thinking at this point that, okay, there's a lot more than six guys out there. We, we, we need to get into this thing? Absolutely. Um, uh, with some caution, uh, uh, the volume of fire that was coming back at us, plus the radio comms from uh, the platoon commander at, uh, of 11 platoon, was saying, first of all, this is bigger than a platoon. We don't know how big it is, but it's bigger than a platoon. So company commander has to be thinking, well, is it, is it something that a company can handle? Um, secondly, um, the, the intensity of fire was nothing, in, not in the rule books. You know, the, the, the local VC might have had three or four rounds in a magazine. Um, here we're getting literally hundreds of rounds and many automatic weapons uh, firing. So this is a bigger, stronger group than we know. So um, if we can't go forward and support 11, then the only thing we can do is to uh, is to support them from a flank and get them to withdraw. And basically, the next hour and a half is going to be those movements, um, complicated by the fact that after the first hour or so, um, the, the rain did come, the monsoon did come, and it was the heaviest rain with lightning that any of us had uh, had experienced. So they were still firing at you through a monsoon, through that heavy rain? Absolutely. The only the only difference the rain made was that the visibility was then about halved. So where we had been able to see 300 yards uh, on the clearing, in, in on, the, on the level, uh, we could now see about 150 yards at best. Uh, in the heavy squalls, maybe 100 yards. The visibility was reduced, but the enemy uh, was close enough that they were still prepared to fire, uh, even though they couldn't see us. They knew where we were, and they were they were pinning us down. From their point of view, they were pinning 
the the platoon down in order that they could mount a flank attack, which is your, your typical um, uh, tactic of, of all armies. Right, um, like an L-shaped ambush, so to speak. Uh, well, yes, except that the, the ambush implies that it was pre-prepared. Well, yeah, right, but it, I mean, just uh, L-shaped fire as far as right. crossfires. Yeah, you, okay. uh, you, you, you fire to keep their heads down and you mount a flank attack. Gotcha. And okay. that's, what, that's what they were doing. That was, that's what they were preparing to do. Um, now, the, the back, back at company, we're realizing that um, uh, it, we don't know the size of the enemy, uh, but we know that there's a huge volume of fire. If we went up and went to 11 platoons position, then the, the, the target is then not 30 people, it's, uh, it's 108 people, and we can be flanked as easily as anyone else if the, if the enemy's got the numbers, which we don't know. So uh, the, the, uh, the second alternative is to send in a, uh, uh, a left hook and try to get the pressure off 11 so that they can withdraw of themselves to us. So 10 platoon is then sent out left hook, basically with the instruction, go to the, to the north of uh, 11 platoon, provide fire across 11 platoon's front, take the pressure off, 11 platoon, we're still talking with them on the radio, we'll tell them when we're positioned, they'll see our fire across the front, they will then pull back to us behind them. Um, that's a, a, a pretty reasonable uh, approach to take. Uh, where it fell down is that when the 10 platoon left hook went in, they discovered an even more enemy sitting up north of uh, 11 platoon, plus people getting into position to take 11 platoon from the north. So they came across not only settled enemy, but enemy on the move, countering 11 platoon. So now we've, we certainly know we've got more than what the company can handle. There's more enemy out there than just a platoon or two. How much that, of the artillery guys from the Kiwis from New Zealand were being used at this point? Okay, um, when we when when an Australian patrol goes out, it always has the the on call support of six guns. In our case, um, we were being supported by one six one battery New Zealand artillery. We had two other batteries, two other Australian batteries at at the base, and on call, but not the indirect support. So the, when uh, when eleven platoon called in their artillery. They had six guns from 161 battery, their 105 millimeter howitzers, um, firing in support. And over the period of time, uh, the first 10, 15, 20 minutes, the artillery is being brought in closer and closer and closer. Yeah, they're walking it in. They're walking it in. Um, when 10 platoon gets into position and sees a massive enemy in front of them, and the enemy doesn't know that 10 platoon is there, they go doggo and uh, fire at the enemy. So suddenly the enemy now has um, a, a group maybe 200 yards north of, what the, of the group that they know. And so they direct their attention to 10 platoon and 10 platoon then has its own firefight with greater numbers than they've got. 10 platoon also first reaction, call for more artillery. To start with, we weren't able to get six more guns, but uh, within 15 minutes or so, we got six more guns. So now we've got two batteries of 105s supporting one, one supporting each of the platoons. Um, I, I, might, I might just add that uh, during the course of the battle, we also had an American 155 self-propelled artillery unit, okay. which had just newly arrived there. 
um, under Captain Ure, and uh, but we had not worked with them, so we didn't know the capabilities of, of the 155 rounds. Later in the battle, we brought them in to fire in depth. Um, it, it turned out that they were much more accurate than the 105s, but we didn't know that at the time. <laughs> Let me ask you, do you know how many people are, are killed or wounded at this point? Um, we we have a report from a, uh, 11 platoon saying that, that one section, that's, that is up to 10 men, are um, disabled. Um, he's not going to put on the radio that they're dead or wounded, but they're not effective. So he's taken about 33% casualties, even uh, in, within the first half hour. Okay. So... 11 platoon and 10 platoon are both in the fight at this point in time. Um, they're both in the fight now. And yep. They're both calling in artillery. Um, but Correct. clearly the numbers at this point, you know it's bigger than the company element that you have. That is correct. All right. So and we've, we've, we've reported this back to uh, task force or back, back to the battalion and the, and the task force base, yes. What instructions are they giving you? Well, they're, um, in, initially they're saying pull back, pull back, uh, withdraw, uh, because they are telling us, um, uh, we don't have the numbers to combat what's there. Um, so pull back and form an offensive perimeter and, and, and come back to base. Um, but clearly that's not an option for you at this point. Well, at this stage, uh, we can only do that if we desert 11 platoon. So gotcha. we, we basically, in, in fairly strong terms, as was typical of the company commander, he suggested that this was not going to happen. So what happens next and where are you at this point? Okay, um, when 10 platoon went forward, 12 platoon came forward and formed uh, the protection unit around uh, CHQ, company headquarters. Company headquarters, right, okay. So we are protecting company headquarters. Um, about uh, maybe 300, 400 yards behind where the firing is happening. And we're still uh, walking on our knees because the, the overshoots are still going through the canopy over our heads. Um, now, it's, it, it becomes obvious that uh, 10 platoons not going to be able to fulfill their mission. They, ca they can't get into a position um, forward of 11 platoon to fire across their front. And they're having their own problems. So basically, they're taking casualties. They have two or three casualties and realize that they're on a hiding to nothing. They can't do anything. All they can do is withdraw. The company commander receives this news and basically says, well, that's fairly logical. If the left hook didn't work, um, then my only other option is the right hook. So he orders 10 platoon to come back, uh, doing fire and movement. I, I don't know if you need that explained, but essentially 11, a 10 platoon withdraws out of the combat. Okay. Okay. And, and so, But they can do this safely, obviously. They, they, well, what they do is they put a, sec a, a section down, fires support, and another section. Right, and they bound backwards. Back behind them, bound, right. inbounds, yeah. Okay. So they are successfully retreating or, or pulling back towards company, but the company commander still has the problem of uh, what are we going to do about 11? So um, he, he basically come, calls me up and says, uh, listen, uh, Dave, um, 12 platoon's got to do a right hook to get to 11. Um uh, by the same token, uh, I don't have 11 or 10 here, so you're going to leave a section with me. So there's, he keeps 10 of my men, and he says, uh, take two sections and go get 11. Um, so my orders are right hook. I'm, I'm not given any specific orders. Uh, the, the, the time and circumstance, circumstance avoids that. 
But I knew that um, uh, on their way eastwards, 11 had passed a hut in the in the rubber plantation, a, a rubber tapper's hut. So I head south to the hut and then east following uh, ten, uh, following 11 platoon. So I do the better half of, uh, of, a, of a right hook until I get into a position where I can see enemy uh, in small groups, uh, probes or uh, recon patrols, if you like, of, of three and four and five men each circling around the sides, the flanks, and, and into the, the rear of 11 platoon. Uh, when I get to that position, I fire on them, uh, and they go to ground, disappear. Um, but essentially, then I make a, I make the, the decision that if I keep going forwards, these people will flank both of us. So what I've got to do is stay where I am and keep the corridor open, and tell eleven platoon that I'm directly behind them. So when they can pull back, they pull back directly west through the corridor that I'm holding open for them. Um, now, at this stage, I'm also calling for artillery because I've got lots and lots of targets to the north and south of uh, 10 platoon. Um, so they bring the third uh, 105 battery, six guns, in to support a 12 platoon. Um, that's only partially effective, partly because um, uh, with the, uh, with the um, enemy recon patrols who are trying to probe 11 find their extent, um, when they're fired on by people behind them, they simply do flanking patrols on us. So, but, but, but we've delayed the enemy. I'm, I'm bringing artillery in. Uh, Ten platoons still in the process of returning to, uh, to, to company headquarters. And I've just advised 11 platoon that I'm immediately behind them by about maybe 200 yards and their radio goes off the air. Um, in the process of 10 platoon withdrawing, their radio operator is shot and they go off the air. So now the company commander has lost comms with 10 and 11 platoon. And I, I, might, just, I might just do a sidetrack here. As soon as the, the company got into a contact, uh, on the company radio net, um, uh, we were talking amongst our, ourselves, but we're well within range of the whole base. And the whole base, as soon as they got news that, 10, uh, that uh, Delta Company 6 Battalion was in contact, they all tuned their radio sets to our frequency and took their handsets off because they're not allowed to talk on our frequency. But the whole task force base is now following the battle from the radio comms of Delta Company. Okay. So they all know what's going on just as well as we do. Um Okay, so in due course, um, uh, and again, through the rain, uh, 10 platoon makes it back to CHQ and forms a perimeter there, but at all times they're being followed up. So they're always in contact with this, this boundary movement, bounding movement. Um, so when they do take over defense of uh, CHQ, uh, it's not long before the enemy is probing them as well. So at this point of the battle, which is now, say, two and a half hours into the battle, okay. each of the platoons is having his own firefight uh, three or four hundred yards apart. And there's just no no end to the enemy. You knock one down and two, two turn up. So we're relaying this information back, and and they're appreciating back at, cast, at Task Force headquarters that uh, you know, this, is, this is really something uh, significant happening here. They don't share the details with us, if they even if they did have the details. But anyway, they know it's something big. So they're, they're now in the process of saying, well, can we reinforce them? 
the only way they can reinforce them is they can bleed task force base of APCs, which we had, M113s, um, and send the company out from the base, hopefully to reinforce us. Two problems with that. First of all, the task force commander is looking at this and wondering, well, maybe this is a feint from the east, but the main attack is coming from the west. So if I send out all my APCs with their 50 cal machine guns um, I'm, and, and an extra company on board, I'm, I'm denuding the base. Um, that's the one point. That is, and, and he basically delays the sending out of the APC force. The other side of the fence is that I've just mentioned about um, getting out there was going through virgin bush. APCs couldn't have handled that, and there was two steep creeks in the way. So the APCs had to come down to the paddy fields to our south and cross the paddy fields, including a river, a weir at the river, and having made that, then go up back, back north into the rubber plantation. So that was going to be a circuitous route, and it was going to take a lot of time. And with the added bonus of if the enemy had planned to interdict a reinforcement force, which, after all, was the, the tactic they used against the South Vietnamese, the French, the Americans, everyone, um, the, the, the crossing point in the, in, the, uh, rubber, in, the, in the rice plantations was going to be the place to ambush them. So the APCs uh, had a, a difficult task even before they left base. But that's all in, in the processes. Uh, in the meantime... 10 is back, um, 11 restores their communication. It turns out that their radio aerial was shot off, so they put the big aerial on. We're, we're using um, uh, 25 sets of it. Um, and so uh, comms are restored with 11, and they say they're, uh, they're um, experiencing the enemy is closer and closer and closer. They're, they have called in artillery to about 100 yards from their perimeter, and they request another 50 yard reduction and they were still not able because they've taken more casualties they were still not able to pick up their casualties and withdraw to us even though they knew in vague terms where we were so the implied suggestion there was well can you come and help us because we didn't we don't have the manpower that we've got more dead and wounded than we have uh, vertical and so we can't tactically withdraw with with our people um and also, um, uh, the company commanders are looking at our ammo expenditure. With all three platoons having been in a firefight for well, well more than an hour, you know, we're running low on ammo, even though we're we're um, exercising extremely good fire control. Because a lot of units would have been out of <laughs> out of ammo by in then. about thirty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Well, we uh, we unfortunately had a uh, even a, 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 a less field. Um, capacity for, for rounds than, than that. When we had our SLRs, the FN um, rifles, um, that was our standard equipment, we were only able to be issued three 20-round mags. So the average soldier took uh, 60 rounds of, of ammunition into them, which you must, you must consider for the context, that was adequate for all the experiences that we'd had, and it had been adequate for one battalion in the year before when they were working with 173rd Airborne. So we're well, just put that in the context here, real quick, yep. Dave. That simply now, when we go out, Americans go out with two hundred and ten rounds. That's our, exactly. our basic load. So exactly. uh, it's almost four times as much. <laughs> so we have sixty rounds in mags, and we have um, those of us that were smart enough to carry more rounds. 
they were in our our wedding webbing in our backpacks, and of course we had dropped our backpacks back at company, so so oh, we were no, no further ahead. Well, you know, this was new new learning for us. This is green fields. So um, uh, in in uh, in due course, we also asked for an ammo resupply, and we got knocked back on that. Um, no, we don't have choppers here, and no, there's no landing field where you are. You know, we can't get down through the rubber and so on and so on. And that was resolved by the two helicopter pilots who had brought some entertainers into the uh, to the base area earlier that day. And they went to Task Force headquarters and said, uh, it, you know, it, we're, it's like a bus line. You know, we're the drivers. We know what to do. We're going to do it. So they overruled their command, the, the pilots, and uh, basically went over to 6th Battalion, picked up a load of ammunition and flew it. So about an hour before the battle finished, we're talking about now 6 o'clock-ish, they're flying towards us. The battle started maybe uh, 3.30 or 4, 3, 3, 3.40 I think it was. So they're now flying through the monsoon rain and they're going to locate us and drop ammunition down as free fall out of the chopper through the canopy down to us, into our perimeter. So that's all happening. The APCs are, are trying to load uh, people and, and get permission to leave the base. The 11 platooners are calling artillery to within 50 yards of us. And if you know a 105 round, um, you don't want them landing 50 yards in front of you. That's danger close. That's it. 10 platoon is, uh, is now protecting CHQ and being probed. And uh, 12 platoon with, with two sections, so uh, one officer and 20 men, are, are keeping a corridor open for 11 to withdraw through when they can get the chance. Um, so that's the status about now before the battle finishes. Um, we've still got now to go and we don't know it. <laughs> I mean, this is how exhausted are you at this point? Um, exhaustion doesn't come into it. No, I don't think anyone was falling asleep at the post. I'm, no, but I mean, I just, you know, there, there is, there is a, there's a point where your adrenaline starts yeah. to, to run down. You know, I mean, it's just to stay at well, that level for hours and hours and hours is really, really tough. Yeah. Certainly in 11 platoon, uh, their adrenaline is exhausted. When we see them in about uh, 20 minutes time, um, they are just looking like haunted men. They're just ghosts. Um, so they are at the at the end of their tether. Ten is, is taking it hard, um, and and um, they haven't suffered so much, but they are under equal pressure. And twelfth platoon is reasonably fresh, only having joined the battle, but still um, under shall I say light contact because it was still probes. Um, rec rec recon patrols around 11 platoon and then around 12 platoon, but they were still only three, four, five men. So you'd shoot them and you'd, you'd, uh, you'd drop some and the others would drag them away, but they'd, you know, a couple of minutes later there'd be another group. So we were under constant contact but not heavy contact. Understand? Yeah, no, I'm tracking. Um, at any point in time, do you feel like you're not going to get out of this alive? Um, uh, in, in an academic way, yes, everyone understood that the, um, the odds were overwhelming. The APCs were delayed. The ammo resupply was forbidden, but, but run anyway. Um, and we weren't going to get reinforcements and, and the enemy just kept coming. So yes, academically, we knew that, um, that, that we weren't going to survive this. Um, however, the, the spirit of training and so on was that um, uh, if that's going to be our fate, well, then it's going to be expensive for the enemy, so um, we're going to keep doing our job. 
Um, in the whole four hours, no one uh, collapsed or, or cut and run. No, no one uh, 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 did their own thing. They were all a cohesive unit all the time. All right, so how does Delta Company ultimately get out of this? Okay, um, eventually uh, 11 Platoon says, um, look, 100 yards, uh, 50 yards, uh, artillery is dropping, but the bastards are still coming through. Um, call artillery down on our position. At least we're lying on the ground and they're standing up. And the, the, uh, the artillery officers, no, I can't do that. I'll, I'll drop it another 25, but get out of there. Uh, so basically, he's now got orders. Well, you've got to leave the dead alone. Check everyone uh, that is still alive and bring them with you and go back to 12. So 11 does that. 11 pulls out um, and uh, joins 12. Um, artillery is dropped 25 closer to where 11 was. And uh, at that stage, um, 11 platoon has now pulled back all the people that it knows is alive and have had to leave their dead behind. Uh, 11 platoon and 12 platoon are now together. I've taken uh, casualties. I've taken uh, five wounded out of my 21 people in the time I've been behind them. Um, I get all of the able people that came back from 11 to take one wounded man each and direct them back to CHQ headquarters about 300 yards away. And off, with all the able people left of 11, of 12 platoon, we form a rear guard and we protect them as they pull back. So ultimately, about um, about quarter past six, uh, we're all now assembled into the one position except for the known dead of 11 platoon 300 yards out. Um, we form a perimeter around CHQ, and, and we've, we've got now 11 platoon, 12 platoon, and 10 platoon casualties and, and some KIAs in the... CHQ position in the company aid post. So basically, we can't pull back from that position. So that is going to be our final um, uh, perimeter. And, and everyone knows that. The, the word has passed around. You know, this is it, guys. We can't pull back from here. Uh, we can't avoid it. So uh, basically, we, we, we form a perimeter. And all the three artillery batteries, the, the 18... Um, 18 guns that had been supporting us are now pulled back to support our, our perimeter. And the artillery is now falling 100 yards outside company. And that is later reduced to 50 yards. And it, it is even later produced, reduced down to 25 yards. And in a rubber plantation, you can't do any smaller than that because uh, uh, shells burst in the canopy. Um, so now uh, this is the last half hour of the battle. Uh, we're now consolidated other than the 11 platoon dead. And the APCs, we're told, are on their way. The ammunition has just turned up and been free-falled into the company perimeter, and the, the two choppers have flown away again. Um, they're Australian uh, Huey UH-1Bs. They've flown back, and, and uh, we've got all 16 105s registered on us, and the 155s are now firing in depth, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, the, the American 155s. Um, at this stage, the rain eases off slightly, and it's getting a little bit darker, but the enemy now knows where we are. They have us absolutely pinpointed from, from three directions, uh, north, south, and east. 
at this stage we enter a phase where um, the only the only expression I could use is that the enemy uses human wave tactics. That is, they put together 60, 70, 80 men into three waves and they just push at us through the artillery and uh, through dint of numbers, some still come out the other end. So we're picking off the ones that survive the artillery ring. Uh, and the, the saving grace here is for saving for us is that these are not coordinated attacks they come in one comes from the northeast and one comes in from the southwest and then one comes in from the east and one comes in from the south and so on and in between those times because you see the enemy doesn't have radio comms down at that level and so there's a few minutes respite after each assault comes in and and uh, we've got ammunition resupply but it's not resupplied in magazines it's resupplied in in ammo boxes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in between the assaults, we're distributing single rounds to the diggers on the front line, and they are inserting them into their magazines as time permits. So after expending their rounds on the, the previous uh, assault, then they might fit three, four, five, six, seven rounds into their magazines, and then the bugle calls or the whistle blows, and another assault comes in. So they expend their rounds there, and then the assault goes in somewhere else on the perimeter and um, they have another few minutes to, to reload their ammunition. That is so crazy. That, that's, it's, it's hectic, it's crazy, and uh, that's what happened for about uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And all the time it's getting darker and darker. The enemy bodies are heaping up in front of us, literally. The enemy is climbing over its own people, but they're still in the artillery zone, so... Um, artillery is falling. Imagine 18 guns firing at a high intensity rate. We're getting a, a 105 shell on the perimeter, 25 yards out, um, at least once every second for for, for for 20 minutes. So it's it's chaotic in there. It, um, the, the the rain is easing, but the mist from the uh, explosions and the fumes are are replacing the rain. So there's still an opaque. A circle around us, and the enemy coming in there is silhouetted against that, and uh, they, they become targets for us. The enemy handles anything from 50 yards to, to you know, out, and we're handling everything from 50 yards close to us in. Um, now, that lasts until a few minutes before seven, uh, and it's getting reasonably dark now. The, the, the terminology for last light is always difficult to explain, but last light is basically when you can't identify something at maybe 25 yards, 30 yards, 50 yards. Uh, I think one of your generals during the Civil War said, last light is when you can't define a gray horse at 100 yards. Right. <laughs> I think that was the terminology. Anyway, it's getting dark. The enemy, from putting the enemy's hat on, he knows that APCs are coming. He knows we've been resupplied. He knows we can be resupplied again. He's lost a horrendous number of troops. Um he gives up. He, he blows a different bugle call just before 7 o'clock uh, and the firing stops. And after that, the only firing in the, in the plantation is from distances where the enemy is firing single shots to tell people where to come back to. So basically the battle is over. Um, the APCs turn up about uh, 10 minutes after last night, about, uh, about 10 past 7. <laughs> um, the artillery is lifted from our perimeter and, and starts to fire in depth, of course, avoiding the 11 platoon wounded. 
and the eventual uh, casualty rate from the 108 men on the ground is 17 dead and about 23 wounded. So we lost about a third of our numbers, became casualties. And on the, on the way in, the APCs had their own firefight with a fringe group, and one of their drivers was critically wounded. Uh, he died um, about uh, 10 days later. So the total casualties, 18 dead, 23, 24 wounded. Um, for, the, for the enemy casualties, uh, we have no way of knowing. We, we went back the next day and, and uh, located them and buried them. We counted 245 oh, still wow. there. Well, that's, 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 the, that's the small end of it. Uh, there, were, there were huge areas of the battlefield in depth and in front of 11 platoon, which had been cleared by their casualty evacuation people. Our follow-up forces, um, following the, the, the deep tracks that they made on withdrawal, came across any number of um, temporary hospitals, discarded limbs, shallow graves, um, discarded weapons and equipment, bloodied uh, uniforms and so on. Um, but the enemy is very tight-lipped about the whole battle. Um, nothing authoritative has ever come out about it. They, they claim, of course, that they gave us a hiding and... and, uh, and Killed us. Uh, he killed a whole battalion that was there. Not not saying that there was only a company. Um, and uh, so there's no authoritative uh, uh, result from the enemy point of view. A subsequent battalion, however, the battalion took over from us, killed a courier uh, later in their tour, early in their tour, um, who had the diary of a, uh, a, a, a two IC of one of the units. And he recorded 800 dead. Um, that is, a, a taken from the battlefield dead or died subsequently of their wounds. But again, um, uh, that's that, you know, it's written in a diary, but we can't be uh, sure of it. Certainly, the, one of the outcomes of the battle was that the enemy, the main force enemy, the NVA in the province, never again attempted to contact the Australians in and around their base. We did have subsequent firefights with them, uh, but on those occasions, when we fought the NVA uh, after Long Tan, it was because the NVA came into the province to do something different, like during Tet 68. Sure. Um, um, or, or we met them on the boundary of the fringe of the province, or indeed we were operating outside the province um, and came to, in contact with the N NVA. Um, for instance, uh, what we call battles of Coral and Balmoral, we were um, subsequent to the Tet Offensive. Um, we were on a cordon with the Americans up north of Saigon, so we were operating out of our area, and the NVA chose to to uh, mix it with us. But, I mean, but, let, me, let me just put this in perspective for people, real quick, Dave. So you said you counted yeah. two hundred and forty-five dead the next day. Yeah, that's two hundred and forty-five dead. Okay, yep. so let's just say conservatively. If they only lost a third of their force, like you had lost a third of yours, because anything more yes. than that, when you start getting past 30, 40 percent, you, 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 you're sustaining casualties at such a rate that you no longer can stay in the fight. You're Correct. talking about six, seven hundred soldiers. That's a battalion sized element you were up against. At, at least a battalion. At least a battalion. Um, what I haven't mentioned, uh, um, uh, when we cleaned up the battlefield afterwards, there was square yards in front of the old position, the, the, the former position, where we couldn't pick up anything 
identifiable. It was just like um, like mincemeat because, of course, those killed earlier lay on the ground and, and artillery kept firing at them. You know, with around a second landing in our perimeter, any bodies out there would just shoot up and shoot up and shoot up. We were walking through essentially mincemeat oh, for many yards. Um, and later on, when, when we were cleaning up, uh, the, you know, we were bringing the, the, the recognizable bits of bodies in and burying them, sometimes the only way we could tell the bodies from the, um, from the, the red mud of the rubber plantation is um, the parts that the flies were interested in. Um, because of course it churned up the red mud too. So, yeah. um, uh, it was, there was a lot of bodies that were just vaporized. Okay. So, um, obviously, you know, it, it's a day that you'll never forget. Um, and you tell that you recount it with such accuracy. So I, I certainly appreciate all the details that you've, you've given us, but, um, fast forward to, August 18th, 1969, three years after the battle. Correct. You guys went back there to honor your fallen. Absolutely. This is, um, this is when you say you guys, the same unit went back. Right. The same. So you were you actually there for that or no? No, no, okay. not at all. Our, our tour of duties was similar to yours. Um, our soldiers would go there for a year and come back, um, uh, go home. And then if they were still in the unit or in a different unit that was, that was sent, well, then they'd go with that unit. But the tour of duty was one year. Um, so all of the people in the first tour of 6th Battalion had had come back to Australia, either got out of the army or been reposted. And so a, a second refreshed 6th Battalion went three years later. It was the same, the same unit but different people. Um, yes, um, the Battle of Long Tan happened only about four, five hundred, five thousand yards from the base. So it was always in our area and constantly we had patrols passing through and all the patrols kept finding bones and equipment and brass and so on. Um, so the enemy wasn't able to sort of reclaim the land. The, 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 the 1969 tour of 6th Battalion had a, mounted a particular operation to go into the rubber plantation and mount a cross in memorial, not only of those that we lost, but those that the enemy lost. We, we were careful to to uh, make it known to the public, to the, to the civilians, the locals, that this was to commemorate all sides of the battle. Um, so we erected a, a, a particular shaped cross on the site of the 11th platoon uh, defence. And that that exists. A replica of that exists today. After the end of the war, about seventy one, seventy two, when we withdrew, the the enemy forces came in and actually took over our base and made it their base. And they pulled down that cross, and it it, it was lost to history. Then in the eighties, uh, a couple of people went back to Vietnam and located the cross, and. It had been taken. It had been used by uh, by the locals for other re reasons, and the enemy, um, the, the former enemy, was now the government, and the government assumed that, took it back to their their Dong Nai Museum over in Binwa Province, and they produced a replica, and they reset up the replica on the battlefield, and that's still there today. Um, 
uh, just as an incidental, um, America, um, sorry, the Vietnamese in charge now, the, 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 the communist Vietnamese, only allow two um, war memorials to stand on their soil uh, that we know of. One is the French one up in Dien Bien Phu, and the other is that, that Long Tan uh, cross in Phuc Thuy province. They, they won't permit any other war memorials over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess, you know, after everything that went on all these years have passed, what still stays with you about the battle? Uh, every detail, as I've just <laughs> remarked. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, as it will with you, with uh, with the contacts that you had in Iraq, you'll remember them when you're turning seventy five and eighty. No, I mean, I guess that's true. I, but I mean, is there an emotion or a feeling that sort of is purveyant? Um, no, I, I see it in many other people. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll give you a difference. As soon as I came back, because I was an officer, I knew uh, what had gone on. I had the maps and the and the radio traffic and so on. As soon as I got back, I was asked about it by not only the um, the veteran community, the, the training, the, the military training establishments, the ex-army people from World War II and Korea who had now manned all the uh, Rotary Clubs and the Apex Clubs and the Masonic Clubs and so on. So I was frequently asked to talk about Vietnam and about Long Tan. Um, so I've lived with it fully for more than 50 years. A lot of the other soldiers came back. They didn't know as much as I did because they were diggers, and, and although the training and the intention was there, they didn't have the, the, the material facts with them. They didn't carry maps and so on. They didn't always know exactly where on the map they were. And these people have come back in a depth of ignorance, if you like, if, if I can say it um, without demeaning them, and they've closed in on themselves, and, and they, they've become your typical uh, Viet Vet who doesn't want to talk about it because he's got nothing to talk about. He only remembers the good times in the towns or the, 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 the bad times in the bush which he doesn't want to talk about. So for me, yes, I've lived with it every day. I've, I've refreshed it. I've written a couple of books on it. Um, I've been involved in, in uh, some, some documentaries uh, and so on. Um, so I'm, if there was a monkey on my back before, it's well and truly gone. Well, it's certainly inspirational. Um, and, and again, I was completely unaware that, you know, there was a, a battle that Australians, you know, and, and that Australia uh, had such a deep, rich history about for all these years. I mean, I knew that there were coalition forces in Vietnam, but uh, this yeah. is something that you don't, unless you're deep in the history of the Vietnam War, this is probably something not a lot of Americans know uh, because well, clearly I- it didn't impact them. They're probably not. Uh, um, and, and what I say next, you can include or exclude as you wish. Um, the Americans were there in, in huge numbers and overwhelming might and power. You had all the equipment. You had the, 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 the heavies. You had the, the uh, aircraft and the artillery and, and Puff the Magic Dragon and Spooky and so on. The Australians were there in very small numbers. I think probably our, our biggest, the, the biggest number at any one time might have been a couple of thousand. Uh, and we were very small on equipment. Our method of working was to get out in the bush, lurk in the jungle where the enemy was supposed to be lurking, and out-lurk him. That was counter-revolutionary warfare. Um, we we went in there and operated a different way to the bulk of the Americans. Perhaps some of your um, 
long range your looks mm -hmm. um, or you know, or your recon outfits that, that that went out you know thousands of yards perhaps their experiences will be the same as ours we lived out in the bush for uh, for weeks and in some cases months um, with very rare resupplies but on dehydrated rations and so on and um, no transistors no perfumes in the bush no mod cons uh, we lived like the bush and and uh, tackle them on their own ground um, another thing that the americans don't don't the ones that know that the australians were there don't really appreciate is that um, they acknowledge that we were there but but maybe we were just there just waving the flag so that americans say look our, our allies are with us and we were put in cotton wool and sent into a different province and you know nothing much happened when we went there, mid-60s, um, South Vietnam had 44 provinces. Of those 44 provinces, 42 were under the nominal control of the South. Only two were under the nominal control of the North. One of them was the very southernmost province, the rice-growing region in the Mekong Delta. And it's obvious that the Viet Minh, Viet, Minh, Viet Cong, and NVA needed that to, to get their resupplies. But the other enemy-dominated province was the one that the Australians were sent to. Uh, why did the enemy dominate that particular province? Well, I mentioned earlier that that province had the only seaport that was able to supply Saigon. Saigon was a city then, along with Cholon, uh, of uh, two or three million people and couldn't be supplied by airlift. So they needed, they depended upon sea port facilities. The only one was at Vung Tau, and any supply landed in Vung Tau had to go up the peninsula through the province and over to Bien Hoa and then Saigon. So the, the enemy appreciated that if they can control the province, they could cut off the port from Saigon. So it was a strategically valuable province for them, and the Australians were put there. So we... We carried our weight in political terms and strategic terms uh, as well. Now, because of the huge installations you had in Binwa and Da Nang and up in the DMZ, um, they they far outweigh what the Australians did in in technology and uh, um, you know, equipment terms. Um, so unless you're looking at the minutia of the daily operations, it's easy to uh, overlook the Australian contribution to Vietnam. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, just an unreal story, an unreal battle. And, uh, you know, uh, while the results were, were, you know, a victory from a military standpoint, obviously the, the, the human loss is never lost uh, on, on any of our listeners and our audience. And for that, certainly, Understand. you know, uh, the sacrifice is never forgotten. But, Dave, I, I can't thank you enough for – uh, sharing so much of your story, enlightening our audience, and certainly um, letting us know that uh, military members all over the globe um, who choose to stand up and fight for their country were certainly a, a noble cause. And, and the fact that it was in partnership with uh, American forces and an, and an American cause certainly uh, makes it all that more, at least noble to us, if that makes any sense. So um, I certainly thank you for your time and certainly thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that, and, uh, and thank you for all of your and your country's service uh, subsequently. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email 
at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com thisishome today.